We'll turn now to look together at God's Word. We're continuing to look at 2 Corinthians tonight. Tonight we get to chapter 8, and we enter into a new section of the letter that includes uh, chapter 8 and 9. Uh, I know I listed both 8 and 9 in our bulletin originally. I was a little overambitious, and we'll just be looking at chapter 8 tonight. Tonight's text, though, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, is a good example of one of the benefits, uh, or drawbacks, depending on how you look at it, uh, that comes from preaching through books of the Bible chapter by chapter. It forces us to look at texts that we otherwise might not want to. Many of us have topics that we uh, want to consider from God's Word. Maybe it's encouragement in Christ, or comfort in suffering, maybe we want to grow in love or in kindness. I think generally fewer of us want to hear, though, about greed and generosity. I think that fewer people getting ready to come back for evening church think to themselves things like, man, I hope tonight I'll hear about what I should do with my money and how greedy I can tend to be. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not sure how much I really want to think and talk about the topic either, but here we are. We've made our way through Second Corinthians. Tonight we arrive at chapter 8. And other than skipping two chapters, there's little else to do but dive in. And so let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. A lot has come before uh, this point in the letter. Uh, but in a large sense, Paul is now getting to one of the main points of his epistle. Paul sent this letter with a delegation that included Titus and two other men. And now he's actually getting to why he sent those three men who handed this letter that we're now reading to the Corinthians in the first place. Now, I don't usually make adjustments to the translation to a text as we're reading it, because my Greek, unfortunately, is beyond rusty. But I'm going to make a couple adjustments as I read the text tonight, because I think they're safe ones. They don't really change the meaning of the text, but they rather bring out a theme that ends up being a little bit more subtle in the ESV than it would be, I think, in the original. In the Greek, Paul uses the root for the word abundance, or overflow, uh, six times, though in various forms, as a noun or as a verb. But the ESV uses three different words to translate those in this chapter. It uses the word abundance or overflow or excel. So I'm going to read this passage using the same root. I'll go with overflow or overflowing because it gives a bit more of a concrete sense to the word that's being used. And so with that said, let's hear from our text tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul writes, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Ma of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their overflow of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you overflow in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you overflow in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, 
but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that, as a matter of fairness, your overflow at the present time should supply their need, so that their overflow may supply your need, so that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who puts into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted your appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you out of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. This is God's word for us this evening. So we consider this text, let's start this evening by getting a sense of what Paul is asking the Corinthians for. An important piece of Paul's ministry as he traveled and ministered to Gentile churches was to take up a significant collection from them, which once he had all of it together, he would present to the impoverished church in Jerusalem. This collection and gift had a lot of significance. It had significance first, of course, because God's people in Jerusalem were in need. They were struggling, and it was important for other Christians to come to their aid. So that, in and of itself, was significant. But it was also significant because these were Jewish Christians in need, and the collection was being taken up from Gentile Christians. Before they became Christians, these impoverished Jewish believers would have been taken care of by the Jewish charity structure in Jerusalem. The Jews cared for each other's needs. They did it better sometimes than at other times, but they knew that they were to care for the poor amidst their number. But when these Jewish Christians professed their faith in and allegiance to Christ, their fellow Jews no longer considered them one of their own. They cut them off from the funds for the poor in Jerusalem. And then on top of that, they, were, they persecuted them. And so these impoverished Jewish Christians were facing severe trials. Now, in addition to that, Paul also hoped for this collection and gift 
to make an important statement to the Jewish Christians. These Jewish Christians in Jerusalem struggled with the idea that their first identity, their primary kinship, was now with their fellow Christians rather than with their fellow Jews. Paul's collection among the Gentiles for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem was meant to show that truth to them through love. The non-believing Jews might reject these new Jewish Christians, but the non-Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians, were ready to treat them like family and to care for them accordingly. The Gentile Christians were ready to provide for them and to call them and treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ. So the collection was important for a lot of reasons. Paul is clear that giving to the collection was not a requirement. It was not a command from God. It was not a law that he would impose on them as an apostle. He was appealing to and pleading with them, but not commanding them. But still, Paul hoped that the Corinthians would give. And the Corinthians, during an earlier visit, had agreed that they would give. They saw the importance of the collection, and they pledged to contribute to it in a meaningful way. But now the report has come to Paul that they're not really doing it. They're not really getting the funds together. As enthusiastic as they may have been at the beginning, it's now unclear that they will give what they said that they would. And now Paul has to deal with a delicate situation. He has to approach this carefully, and he does. We've been reading throughout 2 Corinthians of all of the tension and struggle that has come up between Paul and the Corinthians, and now Paul has to talk to them about money, about their money. And that's not an easy thing to do in that situation. But Paul is, of course, a wise communicator and a loving pastor. He speaks well to the Corinthians, and his words have something for us as well tonight. In the text that we just read, Paul lays out, somewhat subtly, first how the Corinthians are avoiding giving. And then he gives them five things they they should consider as to why they should give. So, what we'll do tonight is ask those two questions, not only about the Corinthians, but about ourselves. First, how do we often avoid giving? And second, what should we consider about why we should give more than we might be giving right now? And there will be five answers to that second question, but I will do my best to keep them brief. So first, let's ask, how do we often avoid giving? I said before we read it that Paul repeats that word overflow or overflowing in this passage, and I think that actually is one of the key elements in understanding the answer he gives to that question here. Paul brings it up especially in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, Paul reintroduces the topic of the collection, and then in verse 7, he somewhat delicately points to an underlying reason as to why the Corinthians are avoiding giving to the collection. He says this to them. He says, But as you overflow in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you overflow in this act of grace also. Paul is noting here that there are a variety of ways that God blesses his people with abundance, with some kind of spiritual overflow that they can then use to bless other people. And as we are called, uh, and with this we are called, to see how God has blessed us and how we can share that overflow with others. But Paul is also bringing up that there are some kinds of overflow we like sharing more than others. 
The Corinthians, you might remember from 1 Corinthians, had a special interest in miraculatory, I'm sorry, miraculous and revelatory spiritual gifts as well as oratory gifts. For them, these were the kinds of spiritual overflow that they liked to share. And so in verse 7, it's likely here that faith, uh, that word he uses there, is a reference to miracle-working faith. That speech here is likely a reference to a form of charismatic speech, and that knowledge is intended to be a reference of theological understanding. Paul lists two more things. He says earnestness and our love for you, uh, Paul's love for the Corinthians. Again, two things that seem to relate to the Corinthians' relationship with Paul another thing that benefits them. As one commentator puts it, uh, he says, the Corinthians were strong in activities that are local to and centered on them, but weak on those that are for the benefit of those outside. In other words, the Corinthians had certain ways that they liked to allow their blessings to overflow and certain ways that they didn't. Theological knowledge to share with others around them, that they liked a special revelation to proclaim to those they worshipped with, also a good one in their reckoning. But giving their money to a church hundreds of miles away, which they would see no return on in their own lives, that they didn't like so much. That was not their preferred way of overflowing. And as you consider that, I think we can also consider the reality that we are not that different a lot of the time. We have certain ways that we like to let God's blessing overflow from our lives into the lives of others. Overflowing in ways that somehow indirectly benefit us as well can be especially nice. But regardless of that, sometimes there are just some ways that we enjoy blessing other people more than other ways. And that in and of itself is not necessarily a problem. What is a problem, according to Paul, what he's looking at here is when we only want to let God's overflow in our lives bless other people in the ways that we prefer. When we refuse to share the overflow of our lives with others in certain ways, because we don't want to. And it does seem that it's a minority of Christians overall who really enjoy sacrificially giving away their money. I mean, those people do exist, but there's not a whole lot of them. Most of us, even if we do that faithfully, would rather find another way to serve, if that were possible. Generally, we don't like to give our money away to the extent that it really costs us something. When God blesses us financially, we don't want to let it overflow into the lives of others. We prefer to build bigger barns. And Paul tells us here that that's a problem. It's a problem for the Corinthians, And it's a problem for us as well. And I think most of us know that it's a problem for us. It's one of the reasons why it's not that hard to write a sermon on on giving that induces guilt. Most of us already feel kind of guilty. But Paul's goal here in this passage is not to make the Corinthians feel guilty. That's not what he's aiming for. His goal, rather, is to nurture in them a greater desire to give. He's not trying to compel or manipulate them into giving, but to fan into flame a desire in their hearts to give generously. And he does that in this chapter by encouraging them to consider five different things. All 
I really want to do tonight is to walk through this chapter and to reflect on those five things that Paul brings up and how they should affect our hearts in this area of giving. And so let's look more closely at our passage together and see each of those elements. The first piece that comes up in this chapter is in verses 1 through 5. You can take a look at it if you'd like. In these verses, Paul begins his appeal to the Corinthians about giving by asking them first to consider those who have less but have still given generously. He describes in these verses how the Macedonian Christians are experiencing what he calls extreme poverty and affliction. But even so, he points out, they have given generously. So what is Paul doing here? Well, I don't think, again, I don't think that Paul is trying to manipulate the Corinthians into giving, and I don't think he's trying to provoke some sort of rivalry between them and the Macedonians that would induce them to give more. What I think he's doing in this passage is pointing the Corinthians to the Macedonians as a sort of reality check. Tim Keller tells the story of one time when he was teaching a seven-part series on the traditional seven deadly sins. It was at a gathering that happened regularly outside of Sunday worship. And each gathering had a lecture that focused on one of those traditional seven deadly sins. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Early in the series, his wife predicted to him that the lowest attended session would be the one that was focused on greed. She was right. After that happened, Keller reflects on this a bit. He writes, people packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride, but nobody thinks that they're greedy. He goes on, as a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. And how does it do that? Well, Keller goes on to point out that most of us live in a particular socioeconomic bracket. And once we establish ourselves in that bracket, we really only look in two directions financially. We look over at others who live the same way that we do, and then we look up at others who have more. And we particularly notice those who have more than we do. And we compare ourselves. And we think about how we don't live nearly so well as those other people. And we maybe even pat ourselves on the back for being more modest and more generous, at least we think, than those other people with more than we have are. And as long as we do that, we can tell ourselves that our means are modest, no matter how wealthy we are. According to a 2014 Pew study, only 2% of Americans identify themselves as upper class. J.D. Vance, who grew up poor in a post-industrial town in Ohio, but then went on to attend Yale Law School, talked about what a strange experience it was for him to hear a student tell him that their family, which had a surgeon mother and an engineer father, was, quote, middle class. But if we're always looking at those above us, we can always believe that we don't have that much. And therefore, as a logical consequence, we don't have that much to give. What Paul does here in verses 1 through 5 is to tell the Corinthians to do the opposite. He tells them to look at those who have less. 
and particularly at those who have less but are still overflowing with generosity. The goal here is not to guilt them, it is to give them some perspective. The Corinthians think that they don't have much to give. So Paul encourages them to consider the Macedonians, who face, in Paul's words, extreme poverty, but are willing to joyfully give anyway. Do you consider those who have less than you do? Do you consider those who have less but also give more? I don't mean by bringing up those categories, of course, that those with less are inherently more generous. But I do imagine that you know someone who has less than you do and is still more generous than you are. It's worth considering how many people can you name, in your head please, whom you spend time thinking about and maybe grumbling in your head about regarding how much, how they have more than you do. And maybe even thinking about how you bet they're less generous than you are or than you would be in their situation. How often have you done that? How many people fit in that category in your mind? And now it's worth asking after that, how many people you've spent just as much time thinking about because they have less than you do but are still more generous? I'm willing to bet that you are surrounded by both types of people but that most of us spend far more time thinking about the first category rather than the second. What would happen to you, what would happen to us, to our thinking, to our hearts, to how we view what we have, to how we spend our money, if we spent more time looking at the second kind of person who has less but is still more generous? And it doesn't even have to be someone that we know personally. It wasn't for the Corinthians. We can read an article or a book or watch a documentary about the struggles of those who have been less materially blessed than we have. But we need some way to get some real perspective on how much we have. Something that will help us to take our eyes off of those who are financially above us and look around more broadly. And to especially help us know to those who have less than we do, but still give it away more freely to the others in need. That's the first thing that Paul urges the Corinthians to do in verses 1 through 5. Second, Paul turns their attention to Jesus. He does this in verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul here urges us to consider Jesus, to really consider our Christology. Paul is saying that the time when we need to really think about our theology of the Incarnation is when it's time to write our check to some important cause for the Kingdom of God. N.T. Wright comments on verse 9 and says this. He says, Verse 9 has been made famous through a well-known Christmas hymn written by F. Houghton which contains the line, Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Wright goes on and says, It sometimes surprises people when they wonder where that idea came from that it isn't a great passage about the heights and depths of incarnational theology, discussing in wonderful detail all the complex questions about how Jesus can be both God and man. But instead, 
It's in a passage which is basically saying, isn't it time you finish taking up the collection? And yet, right goes on, on second thought, perhaps this passage is about the heights and depths of incarnational theology. Because if theology is truly incarnational, truly the way in which the eternal God took human flesh and lived and died as one of us, the best way of expressing this is not in flights of abstract theory, leaving us with a nice set of well-organized ideas and beliefs, but in the practical, down-to-earth, and often messy details of ordinary life. Let me maybe state more directly what I think Paul's getting at here. I'm sorry, what Wright is getting at, and what I think Paul is saying as well. The best indication of how much each of us really believes the doctrines of the Incarnation and the Atonement, the best indication of how much each of us really believes that the eternal God became man and then died a sacrificial death on our behalf, the best indication of how much we believe that is how generous we are with our money. Because if we really believe that, if we thoroughly believe that, not just in our heads and not just on paper, but really down in our guts, then how could we not give our money away generously for the good of God's people and kingdom? How could we cling to the money we have when we know how, in Jesus, God poured himself out for us? How could we do that? This gives us two angles to consider, one for evaluation and one for our own growth. First, if we want to know how much we believe the gospel down in our guts, we should look at our bank statement and consider how we spend our money. Second, if we want to grow in generosity, we should consider the incarnation and the sacrifice of Christ that was made for us. We should meditate on it. We should pray about it. We should read about it and sing about it. And then we should do the hard work of expressing that theological truth in action in all different areas of life, including what we do with our money. That's the second thing that Paul urges the Corinthians to consider in this passage. Third, Paul goes on to encourage us to consider our past intentions. Paul encourages us, in a sense, to consider our holy impulses, including and maybe especially the holy impulses that we're not really following through on. He does that in verses 10 and 11. Paul writes, And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Paul here is basically saying, Remember about a year ago when you really wanted to support these poverty-stricken Christians in Jerusalem? It was really good that you wanted to do that. And now it's time to follow through and make it happen. And I think many of us have been there. At least most of us have. We hear about a great need. Maybe we see a presentation about it. Maybe we read about it. Or we just encounter a ministry or a need that we think is important. And we decide that we're going to do it. We're going to give to this work. We're going to make the sacrifice to make it happen. And we're excited about that possibility. We're glad that we've made that decision. But then we never really get around to writing the check or setting up the automatic withdrawals or sending in that commitment card. We never do it, and the idea fades into our memory. You see, when we 
think about giving to something usually starts when we lay hold of a vision, when we get excited. We see what the money will do for that need that's been presented to us. We think about the blessing that it will be. We think about the kind of people we will be if we support this need. At this point, the excitement of the vision is really high, and if we're honest, at this point, the cost is really low. We're just thinking about giving. That doesn't cost anything. The problem comes later on when the vision starts to fade and the cost starts to become real. And at some point, the cost seems to outweigh the excitement of the vision. Then following through on our good intentions is not so easy. It's not unlike putting yourself on a diet. When you're thinking about starting a diet next week, it's kind of exciting. You think about how much weight you'll lose. You think about how healthy you'll be and feel. You think about how you might look. But then, of course, when it actually is next week, and when your favorite high-calorie treat is sitting across the table from you, that is when your diet does not seem so exciting. The vision has faded, and the cost is staring you right in the face. Of course, at that point, the key is to recapture the vision, to push yourself to think about what excited you about that diet just a week earlier, to push yourself to remember why you're doing this and what the benefits will be, to fan again into flame the vision that had, that had at one point created all of that excitement until it once more exceeds the sense of the cost that you need to pay right now. And that's basically what Paul is telling the Corinthians to do here. He's pushing them to recapture the vision that they had for this collection a year earlier. He's reminding them of their earlier desire. He's asking them to think about it. He's asking them to let that vision recapture their imaginations as it did a year before so that they can follow through on it and complete the collection now. So the third thing that Paul encourages us to do is to work to keep up the vision that we once had for giving as we intended to do. Fourth in our text, Paul urges the Corinthians to consider the source of what they have. He does that in verses 12 through 15, where he writes, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For it do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your overflow at the present time should supply their need, so that their overflow may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. I think the key to Paul's point in these verses comes in verse 15, that last verse that we read. In verse 15, Paul quotes from Exodus 16, verse 18. Exodus 16 is about God providing the Israelites with manna in the wilderness. When God led his people Israel into the desert, he fed them. He tells them in Exodus 16.4, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Day by day, God provided for what they needed. God fed his people in the wilderness. And so the people would go out, and they were commanded to gather the manna, and then to get together and to measure out what had been gathered, and each to take one omer of it for every person in their household for them to eat that day. 
No matter how much you personally gathered, you were only supposed to take home what your family needed that day. And those who might have gathered less would still take home what they needed. And in that situation, I think it's very easy to see why that should be. When God fed his people with manna, it was very clear where their food was coming from. It was very clear that the Israelites did not create it themselves. It was very clear that every bite of food they received was a gift from their loving creator. It was clear that they were not entitled to any of it because they did not make it. Their only role was to simply gather up the gift of God. And so how could they lay a claim to more than what they needed and deny it to others? Paul here is pointing out to the Corinthians that even though what they have did not drop directly from the heavens like the manna did, all the same principles still hold true. The Corinthians did not truly create what they have. Sure, they worked to acquire it, but all they have has been provided by God. Their work for it is merely a variation on gathering God's overflowing blessing. The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are in poverty. It's not because they refuse to work, but from forces outside of their control. If all that the Corinthians possess is a gift, shouldn't they share that gift with the Christians in Jerusalem who are in need? Paul is not trying to make the Christians in Jerusalem richer than the Corinthians, and he's not asking the Corinthians to give to a level where they would not be able to provide for themselves or their household. He's only trying to distribute God's blessing a bit more evenly among them, not as a command, but as an appeal. And he's explaining that that is fair because they are all in the same position. They are all just trying to gather the blessings of God that they have neither merited nor created themselves. And if the situation were reversed, Paul assures them that it would be fair for the Corinthians in Jerusalem to be sharing what they have with the Corinthians. If all we have is from God, then when his blessings overflow to us, when we gather more than we need, and when our brothers and sisters in Christ are in extreme want because of forces outside their control, then Paul urges us to consider whether it is right for us to share with them what we have. So Paul points us to the Israelites in the wilderness. He reminds us that in some sense everything we have is manna. Yes, you may have worked very hard to gather what you have, and I don't think Paul would minimize that for a moment. That is a good thing. But it's still manna. It's still a blessing that you did not create from nothing. It's all still bread from heaven. And so Paul urges us to consider whether we will withhold it from our brothers and sisters who are in need. And whether, if the tables were turned, we would think that they should withhold it from us. The fourth thing that Paul does in this passage is he asks us to consider such questions. Fifth and finally, we should consider who it is that's asking for the money. I won't reread for you verses 16 through 23, but in those verses, Paul commends the three men that he's sending to take the collection, Titus and two men who in this passage are unnamed. Paul both commends these men who are taking up the collection, and he also encourages the Corinthians to consider their character. He does this first to encourage the Corinthians to see that Paul and those who are in his ministry are handling the money in a way that's above reproach. God does not expect his people to simply hand their money over to anyone who asks, 
but to exercise wisdom. And Paul is showing that he is using that wisdom in how the money is administered. But beyond that, I think that Paul's drawing their attention to those who are taking the collection does something else as well. When a missionary or some other worker from some organization comes to ask for money for a ministry, it's easy for us to think just about what it will cost us. But truly looking at the worker or the missionary who's fundraising should have a different effect on us, at least if we're considering giving to the right kind of ministry. Looking at that worker should remind us that they and others like them are giving far more to this need than we are. We are being asked to give a certain amount of money usually, but they are giving a portion of their lives to this work, their time, their effort, maybe their potential income had they pursued a different line of work. Titus and the two other men who are mentioned here could have probably been living a lot more comfortably if they had chosen not to take part in this ministry and this collection. But there they are, giving far more than they are asking of the Corinthians. Recognizing that, Paul thinks again, I believe, should give us some perspective. This is the fifth and final thing that Paul encourages us to consider in this chapter. And so, looking over them, Paul encourages us to consider those who have less than we do, but still exercise more generosity. He encourages us to consider Christ, who became cosmically poor for our sake. He encourages us to consider and to nurture the initial, initial vision that we may have had for the important cause or ministry. He encourages us to remember where the blessings that we do have come from. And finally, he encourages us to consider the workers who are requesting that support from us. He ends in verse 24 saying, So give proof before these churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Paul here sees our actions as a kind of proof for who we are and what we believe. Our actions say something about us. St. Francis of Assisi was a big proponent of preaching by word. He himself was a preacher. Many of his early followers were formally designated for preaching. Yet as important as he thought preaching was, Francis also knew that it was often more a matter of a man's gifts than the state of his heart, and that it was a task and a gifting that was given to some and not all. And so as he discusses preaching and then steps back and looks at his followers as a whole, he says to them, let all the brothers, however, preach by their deeds. Francis knew, as Paul expresses here, that our deeds preach what we believe at a deep level. So what do our deeds, when it comes to money, say about us? In some way, our deeds probably do reflect the gospel. We, should, we see ways that we have grown over the years in our generosity and in our giving. We see ways that we may have grown in being able to be content with less. And when we see that, we should be encouraged. These areas of growth reflect our growth and maturity in the faith. It's the work of the Spirit in our lives. But along with that, I think most of us will likely also see areas we need to grow. Ways in which our deeds preach something other than the gospel that we believe. Let us seek to believe the gospel more deeply in our hearts and then to preach it more consistently in our deeds, especially in those areas of life where we find it more difficult. And as we do that, let us not be discouraged. 
Paul here encourages the Corinthians to finish what they started. He can do this because he knows that we and that the Corinthians serve a God who finishes what he starts in us. He says to the Philippians, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And as we look at our growth in the future, that is where we find our hope. Amen.